disquiet on the Western Front await. That the old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. That the old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. That the old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. So let's come back to the initial point. What is deforestation? Forests aren't simply collections of trees. They're complex systems with hubs and networks that overlap and connect trees and allow them to communicate. The people that are fighting on the ground, who are barricading the roads, who are digging trenches, who are refusing to let the police in, they're the ones that are winning the fight. So let's come back to the initial point. They want more and more and more, and there is no end. And the world is like there is no more control. Uh, what people need is more love and understand each other. I mean, this is not just you know right versus left. This is kind of an attack on the whole concept of truth. In the end, yes. physics doesn't care yeah. what your skin is. It just does what it does. And also, no matter how rich you are, you have to breathe. Were we under, were surveillance? We under, surveillance? Were we under surveillance at the time of the bombing? And writes a timber harvest plan, who do they submit it to themselves? And that is a conflict of interest. You've used a number of incendiary words. Conflict of interest. What people need is more love. To speak to trees, first, you must recognize the spirit of the tree within you. It's just learning how to take care of the land. And If you were to go and invent a carbon capture machine, you couldn't invent a better machine than a tree. You are listening to Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices of the Forest Resistance, Conversations to Cool a Planet on Fire. This is Chad Swimmer, coming at you from the unceded land of the northern Pomo and Coast Yuki. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining us on Disquiet on the Western Front. I'm Chad Swimmer. Today, we'll hear the voices of youth who are fighting in Jackson State for the forest and for the climate. Greasy Pete, Sarah, Ravel, Walker, Otter, Valentine, and other members of the Mendocino County Youth for Climate. And also, we'll hear from Alicia Littletree from when she was a youth in the Albion Uprising of 1992. We'll also hear from Derek Hutchinson, the head teacher of the Mendocino Community School, since supportive teachers are key allies. But first, we're going to take a moment to look into the origins of civil disobedience and nonviolent direct action. Henry David Thoreau is widely credited with coining the term civil disobedience. For years, Thoreau refused to pay his state poll tax as a protest against the institution of slavery, the extermination of Native Americans, and the war against Mexico. 
when a Concord, Massachusetts constable named Sam Staples asked Thoreau to pay his back taxes in 1846, and Thoreau refused, Staples escorted him to jail. In a public lecture that Thoreau gave twice in 1848, he justified his tax refusal as a way to withdraw cooperation with the government, and he called on his fellow townspeople to do the same. Thoreau's lecture, titled The Rights and Duties of the Individual in Relation to Government, formed the basis of his 1849 essay, Resistance to Civil Government. In 1866, four years after Thoreau's death, the essay was republished under the title Civil Disobedience. Some scholars believe the new title was provided by Thoreau's sister Sophia, his sole literary executor and sole editor of his posthumous edited works. For many of us, our knowledge of nonviolent civil disobedience comes from Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and Judy Berry. This is Martin Luther King. We must continue to delve deeper into the philosophy of nonviolent resistance. There is something about this method that has power. And I know that there are those who will ridicule it occasionally, but it has worked miracles in the South. It has morality with it because it gives us the opportunity to work to secure moral ends through moral means. This is the morality of it, but it has certain practical consequences. It exposes the moral defenses of the opponent, somehow weakens his morale, and all at the same time it is working on, its, on, on his conscience. It disarms him and he just doesn't know what to do with it. If he puts you in jail, that's all right. If he doesn't put you in jail, fine. If he beats you up, that's all right. If he doesn't beat you up, that's all right. If he tries to kill you, all right. You develop the quiet courage of dying if necessary without killing. If he tries to threaten you, all right, if he doesn't. And that is something about it which causes the opponent not to know what to do. Now, he would know what to do with violence. He could call out the state militia. He could call out the National Guard and kill hundreds and hundreds of innocent people and argue that they are inciting a riot. They know how to handle violence, but they proved over and over again that they don't know how to handle non-violence because they throw people... For Mahatma Gandhi, it was a very spiritual thing. These are the words of Gandhi, recorded in 1931. There is an indefinable, mysterious power that pervades everything. I feel it, though I do not see it. It is this unseen power which makes itself felt and yet defies all proof, because it is so unlike all that I perceive through my senses. It transcends the senses, but it is possible to reason out the existence of God to a limited extent. Even in ordinary affairs, we know that people do not know who rules or why and how he rules. This spiritual underpinning has been 
very important for people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King in such situations of massive injustice and violence. Let's go to an actor's reading of Gandhi. We think it is time you recognized that you are masters in someone else's home. Despite the best intentions of the best of you, you must, in the nature of things, humiliate us to control us. You don't think we're just going to walk out of India? Yes. In the end, you will walk out. Because 100,000 Englishmen simply cannot control 350 million Indians if those Indians refuse to cooperate. And that is what we intend to achieve. Peaceful, non-violent, non-cooperation. Till you yourself see the wisdom of leaving, Your Excellency. And in the end, England did leave India. But unfortunately, they took a huge amount of wealth with them. Later on in the show, we'll hear from Alicia Littletree about how Earth First came around to a philosophy of nonviolence as well. But now, let's go more local. Michelle McMillan of Mama Tree Network, who has been involved with activists from very young to very old, but many of the youth activists are part of this network. Michelle, how are you doing? I'm good, Chad. How are you? Doing very well. I want to place you in good company with MLK and Gandhi and hear just a little bit of what you have written about nonviolent civil disobedience. Yeah, it's, it's been a learning experience of a movement. Direct action began in Jackson on April 9th, 2021 with a tree sit when an 18-year-old local high school student climbed into a large redwood tree that the community had named Mama Tree. Uh, tree sit is just triage, but it is satisfying. When bureaucracy systemically lets you down, being able to take such a concrete stand is deeply empowering. And it's also inspiring, which Greasy's presence in Mama Tree quickly galvanized a community of forest defenders. Direct action is generally the result of systemic failure to adequately respond to a shift in public priorities. In the case of Jackson Demonstration State Forest, direct action has been the last resort activity of forest defenders who share the common belief that maintaining healthy forests, acknowledging and protecting the sovereign rights of indigenous peoples, and emphasizing our shared future over fleeting financial gain should be prioritized over the bureaucracy of business as usual. They believe that so long as a tree is standing, there's room to have a conversation about keeping it that way. And that just because a decision has been made by the powers that be, a community does not need to silence its concerns. Direct action is also a means of gaining attention. Activists, through continued nonviolent presence, ongoing rallies, letter writing campaigns, potlucks, <laughs> and artistic outcries, have made clear ground in reframing the way that the public thinks about this precious forest. The movement has grown. For most of the summer, there was no logging in JDSF. This is a tremendous win. Better still, the Board of Forestry announced in January that there would be no new timber harvest plan sold in 2022, as people surely know. Sadly, there are still two, two THPs on the chopping block, uh, both of which have seen significant direct action uh, over the summer. Despite significant community pushback and tribal concerns, CAL FIRE has made it clear that they intend to push forward on the logging of the Casper 500 which is home to Mama Tree and has seen somewhere around 30 tree sitters uh, in Mama, her neighbor Papa Tree, and in uh, a tree nicknamed Gemini. 
That's been since last April. So a lot of people from the community who have said, not only do we care enough about these trees in this forest to hold a sign in town or to protest, but we care enough to haul ourselves some 70 feet into redwood trees, sometimes during logging, during storms, um, and take up a roost for a cause. Insultingly, CAL FIRE keeps saying that <laughs> the conflict is a result of community ignorance, um, that these activists don't know what they're talking about, that if they just read, if they just listened to CAL FIRE, everything would be better. Um, and as we know, a lot of these activists are highly educated and they have all you know, done their due diligence and their homework on what this forest is about. The other timber harvest plan that's still potentially log going to be logged this year uh, Soda Gulch has been on hold due to tribal concerns and proceeding with logging before these concerns have been thoroughly addressed would be gross misconduct. With all of this in mind, it seems really safe to assume that nonviolent civil disobedience will still be needed in Jackson in the spring and summer of 2022. Forest offenders are planning nonviolence trainings and know your rights trainings to inform interested community members about the realities and details of frontline activism. Organizers are also reminding the community at large that not all forest defense, not all civil disobedience requires entering logging zones or living in a tree. Public protest, letter writing campaigns, and activities such as sign painting parties can also have a significant impact. Those hoping to get involved can email Mama Tree Mendo at mama, M-A-M-A, dot tree, dot mendo at gmail.com or uh, check us out on social media, and we're always happy to hear from new friends. I wanted to add that in spite of the uh, mainstream media portrayal of environmentalists as eco-terrorists, everybody, everybody who is involved in Mama Tree Network and Redwood Nation Earth First and Mendocino Trail Stewards, we all obey a code of nonviolence. We are not violent people, and we are not doing anything to endanger the lives of loggers or the lives of log truck drivers or anybody else. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Chad. You are listening to KZYX. This is Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices of the Forest Resistance, Conversations to Cool a Planet on Fire. I'm Chad Swimmer. Where you going today, my friend? Well, I thought I would head south. I gotta tell the people of this land, things just ain't working out. Now they're killing till there's nothing left Gentle giants of the north Laying all the forest lands to waste Cutting deep into our hearts Friends, the trees are calling Thousands falling every day and night Don't you let stop you or distract you from what's right that was Fran and Nymea playing Redwood Summer and I would like to tell you about something that you can be looking forward to on KZYX we are going to be doing a four episode special put on by Alicia Littletree and myself the Albion Uprising a 30 year retrospective that will be coming up in May with the voices and the music of the fight to save Enchanted Meadow in Albion, California. 
redwood summer's just begun We're not giving in to fright Redwood summer's just begun The people know what's right Greasy Pete, thanks for being here with us. Can you tell us how old you were when you first went up to Mama Tree and how you ended up there? I was 18 when I first went up to into Mama Tree. And what got me there was I attended a nonviolent action training, um, specifically centered around protecting Jackson State. And when they asked who was going to be available for to be the first person to sit, um, I was the only one who raised my hand, so it defaultly went to me. Can you tell us about your first night up there? Yeah, my first night up in Mama Tree started off pretty stressful because I had just gotten up there and I kind of realized what I had gotten myself into. But then, after an hour or two and I had kind of settled in, it was like I actually realized it was pretty cozy and I slept super well. What kind of fears did you have related to being up in this tree and doing this action? I was mostly scared of the possibility of falling out of the tree and also getting arrested. How do you feel like spending that time up there changed you? Yeah, I think living up in the tree just kind of made me realize how sentient and alive trees, and especially redwoods, truly are. What do you feel like you accomplished by being up there? Yeah, the biggest thing for sure was just inspiring other people to speak out and help defend the forest. Would you do it again? I would definitely do it again. That was Greasy Pete, 18-year-old Mendocino High School senior who was the first tree sitter in Jackson in many years. I am here at the Mendocino Community School with Otter and Michaela. How are you guys doing today? Mighty fine. I'm good. How are you? Doing very well. What I am curious about is, do you consider yourself activists? Um, yeah, I do. I feel like I have a degree of activism. I guess I am. Mm-hmm. When did you first decide that you wanted to be involved in this cause with Jackson State? Um... During like early spring, Walker and I started a tree climbing practice. And then from there, I just started going more and more. And now I'm more involved. What are your fears about being out there? Um, sometimes it's kind of scary if you're thinking about being arrested or something, but I'm not too scared about it. How about you, Otter? Uh, I'd say the same. It's been mostly, I've never really felt like I was in danger, but... As we spoke, five other students gathered around. Walker, how are you today? Good. How did you first get involved in this forest activism? I went to a rally in Fort Bragg and with my mother, and we were, like, just wondering what was going on. And we went, and there was Pomo elders, and they were talking about some tree stuff that I didn't understand at the time. And then our next, then we went to the next rally and got involved and we went to um, nonviolent trainings and I went to a tree climbing training and then that's how we got initially involved. 
I saw on a picture of you up there that it said that you are Miwok. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm part Miwok. I'm also part Cherokee. And then there's one other that I don't remember the name of, but um, I have like three different tribes in my blood, which is really cool for me. My Miwok tribe is currently up in Tuolumne. Um, but I don't know if there's any Miwok that are up here, but I know that there's Pomo, mm -hmm. which are really cool. They're, some of them are really, really cool to hang out with. Mm -hmm. Coming out here is really nice because then I can just walk in the forest and I feel at home. And then I also see all these little critters that are around here, like little bunnies. And I see banana slugs. And then I also see a bunch of mushrooms sometimes, mm -hmm. like like a hundred pounds worth <laughs> like a lot it's real and i don't i don't pick mushrooms um but my mother does there's a lot of people out there that love mushrooms yeah and has like, your mom figured out a way to make them that you like them oh yes oh oh my gosh there's so many delicious things that she's made with mushrooms it's it's just insane <laughs> what's your favorite um if you have one I, I can't have a favorite with mushrooms, but I can tell you there are some, like, she makes this, um, she makes biscuits and gravy sometimes. She'll make, like, a, a mushroom gravy. Sarah Constance Rose, co-founder of the Mendocino County Youth for Climate, joined us. So, when I spoke to you a few months ago, you felt like this was a short-term thing. That you were thinking, you know, when this is all done, I can get back to what I was thinking of doing for life. But my guess is you don't feel that way anymore. Not so much. This movement has, I mean, from the very beginning, every few months, weeks, there's something amazing happens and it grows sort of astronomically. And since, yeah, since then, we've had so many amazing, like, wins and, like, new ideas and things to do. And now with the formation of the Mendocino County Youth for Climate, um, I really see it being more of a long-term thing. So mm -hmm. I really want to set this group up in a way that even when we're done with Jackson State Forest, because we've won and returned the land back to the rightful Pomo owners, um, the Mendocino County Youth for Climate can live on and have students in Mendocino County like constantly working to help with local climate issues, national climate issues, global climate issues for How as long as it's needed. Michaela? Um, I definitely see it as a stepping stone because you see all the older people who have been doing this for like many, many years. So I think I'll definitely keep going down this path. Mm -hmm. Otter? I also see it as a stepping stone. I, I've like going to protests uh, like Black Lives Matter and um, Fridays for Future. I feel like it's kind of like leading up to something bigger every time. My name is B, and I definitely don't see this ending anytime soon. Like hopefully the situation will get better as more people become aware of how uh, drastic it is. But the issues are pretty pressing now. And I'm wondering if any of you have developed tools to help you guys deal with the issues that you face emotionally surrounding the activism. I think that having a strong community, which has definitely formed out of this movement, 
is one of the most helpful tools for that because we all can get pretty like you know just this is so hard it's so much work and sometimes we lose certain things or sometimes we learn about another cultural site that was is being completely disrespected and destroyed and just hearing about that especially from someone who's like that's their cultural heritage is it can be really devastating but I think that when we form this strong community and network of people that are all here to support one another then that makes it so that you're able to continue through and continue doing the important work Mm -hmm. the whole question about mental health is really good because like I feel um activism can be really detrimental sometimes to see the world for like just this really bleak place (laughs) um but also i feel like confronting that and doing your best to make a change is a lot healthier and personally makes me feel a lot better about my place in the world than just like ignoring it and deciding to like just kind of like look away from the burning pile of garbage that it can kind of seem like sometimes um i don't know i think it's a bummer but it helps me um at least feel like i'm not wasting my time at least very yeah. much. Thank yeah, you, Valentine. I, I think one of the ways, especially with like a lot of the climate anxiety that we see people having around the world, one of the best ways to deal with it is just to know that you're doing everything you can. And I think that like sort of ignoring the problem and pretending like it's not there in the end will not cause you to feel any better. You'll just realize that <laughs> the world's gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you would like to add? Join the Mendocino County Youth for Climate! Yes. <laughs> you can um, follow us on Instagram at the.mcyc or email us at Mendocino County Youth for Climate at gmail.com to just get involved in what we're doing and come to a rally in Sacramento on March 25th. Um, if you're young and need a ride, we have plenty of people willing to drive you. And if you have a child and want to get them there, Drive them yourself because we want as many people as we can get. It'll be a really great opportunity to learn about local and statewide environmental groups and um, learn about the Pomo side of this fight and see some really amazing Pomo music and dancers and hear from some great speakers and just show up and engage with your legislators. Nice. What time is it going to be and where? So it is um, the west steps of the Capitol building and the surrounding area. It starts at 1230 on March 25th and ends around 530. Okay, great. Well, thank you all for speaking with me. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I also spoke briefly with Derek Hutchinson, the head teacher of the Mendocino Community School, about the youth activism and about how the school can support it. My name is Derek Hutchinson, and I'm the head teacher at Mendocino Community High School. Uh, I've been here for about 25 years, and uh, I'm an avid mountain biker, hiker, trail runner, uh, love the environment, and uh, everything I teach and do has some aspect of that in it. How long have you known Sarah and Walker? So I've known uh, Sarah and Walker for uh, the last couple years uh, as students. Mm-hmm. How have you seen their development as activists? Sarah has been an amazing leader. Um, she has been bringing in the forest activism to her fellow students, as has Walker. 
They talk about it weekly. They try to bring other students in. They educate students. They use slideshows to demonstrate what's happening out in the forest. They're really positive. They see a lot of different sides of all the issues. Um, and to me, they seem to be really well educated about the different sides of, you know, all the things that are happening out in the forest. So it's great. Well-rounded. Have you been able to support or guide their activism as their head teacher? I'm enthusiastic about uh, all students getting politically active. I think uh, young people today need to be involved. We absolutely need it. Uh, we need the dialogue to happen. We need to get to a place where everyone can talk, where everyone can come together, where we can resolve problems, whether they're forest issues or any other issues. So anytime students get involved and passionate about uh, changing the place where we are politically, environmentally, is a good thing. As far as support, I mean, you know, they can get some school credit for some of the things that they're doing. Other things, it involves missing school and things like that. They have to, they kind of have to take the, the hit for that. I mean, that's, and, but that's part of activism, right? You got to step up and, you know, nonviolent direct action. There's going to be a consequence. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've accept, accepted that. They're super uh, responsible about making up work and stuff like that. So in that way, definitely support them. And we support them, giving them space to talk about the issues at school, uh, present their points of view. And of course, you know, the environment is dear and near to our school. So yeah, we support them in that way too. Derek Hutchinson, head teacher of the Mendocino Community School. Let's go to Ravel Gautier from the Montessori Del Mar School, 12-year-old climate activist who co-founded Mendocino Coast Youth for Climate with Sarah Constance Rose. Can you tell us about the action that you have planned for, is it March 25th? Yes, on March 25th, basically a protest in Sacramento. They're going to take this Injustice in Jackson Demonstrations date for us to the governor's office. And Mendocino County Youth for Climate are trying to get kids involved. And uh, Sarah and I, uh, and hopefully a lot more people, are going to drive to Sacramento on March 25th and protest in front of the governor and try to get an audience with the governor to stop the cutting of redwoods in Jackson State Forest. About three months ago, I spoke to you and you said that um, hopefully that politicians will listen to young people more than old people. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I feel like um, politicians, often you don't see kids uh, protesting political issues much. And climate change uh, is something that's more than a political issue and that kids all around the world are getting involved in. And I think that children... Um, even though perhaps they're not as literate or articulate as adults and don't know as much, I feel like children can have a sort of bigger voice. And think about Greta Thunberg. She was one girl who uh, struck school for climate change, and she just became this worldwide sensation, and she made so much change, and she's spoken at the UN. Um, I feel like the media really focuses on children because it's kind of something different and something new. And um, once you get a lot of media attention, then the government sometimes really has no choice but to listen to you. Um, so I feel like it's through the media that kids are effective uh, without any sort of fear or anything. Uh, then we, if we take enough action and quickly enough, and who knows what could happen. We could halt this whole thing. 
That was youth climate activist Ravel Gautier, and you are listening to Disquiet on the Western Front on KZYX.org. This is a little folk song ditty. It's about what I learned when I came to this part of the world. And it won't be news to anybody here living in Ukiah or Mendocino County. But it is a nice bit of propaganda for the rest of the world. And uh, actually, people up here tell me that uh, I got my facts all wrong. (laughs) But uh, it's still a good song for the rest of the world. So I'll play it for you. What I did is I mixed up counties here. I, I blended them into one and I made a metaphor out of it called the Chocolate Albion. They, said, they also said it was too nice to the loggers. So it goes like this. Most Decembers, when the blow rains from the east, we pull our hats on low. We watch the endless rain beat the windows on the streets. We got nowhere else to go. When the wind becomes the dawn We almost fear to put our boots on And are you with me, Brother John? How shall we respond to the chocolate Albion? Every summer the trucks roll down the ridge Full of timber and dread The truckers keeping up Payments on the rigs God knows the kids ain't overfed But Judy Berry's car was bombed And the FBI just fumbles on And are you with me, Brother John? How shall we respond to the chocolate Albion? governments and commissions they say you can never underestimate the wisdom of the state dude politicians with ambitions gone fishing and the senators are fond standing on the white house lawn while the salmon are fucking gone how shall we respond to the chocolate albion that was Bill Betrell with the Chocolate Albion, and we're not talking about chocolate that you eat. I'm here speaking with Alicia Bales, also known as Alicia Littletree. Alicia, thanks for being with us. Hey, Chad. Thanks for having me. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy of nonviolent direct action? Sure. Well, it's really fun to get to talk about my... Um, my time as a forest activist here in Mendocino County, it's, it's something that definitely I was a very young person and I moved here sort of in the exciting days of, of the Timber Wars and Redwood Summer and all of that in order to participate in the direct action logging protests that were happening here with Earth First. 
and quickly met Judy Berry and the, the group of local Earth First organizers and activists here who were doing amazing work. And as a teenager, it was just I couldn't have been more excited, more thrilled and inspired. But, you know, I was a rebellious kid anyway. So being able to be up here and, and be running around in the woods with people was like, you know, the best <laughs> experience ever. And I met a, a, just a million mentors and people that I just love deeply, a new sort of chosen family, people who I'm still very close to and had just incredible experiences in the woods. I didn't get my start in the Albion uprising in 1992 as a forest activist. I was actually working in Sacramento, where I grew up at my high school, you know, I was, we started actually started activism during the first Gulf War, which began um, in 1991 when I was a junior in, in high school. And I had met the local anarchist group in Sacramento and we had been organizing very similar style of protests to Earth First, actually funny and irreverent and, um, you know, colorful marches. And, and, and that was incredibly um, powerful for me as a young person. And then that group came up to Redwood Summer 2 in 1991 in um, in Honeydew, actually, in Humboldt County, there was a base camp. The organizers there, including Judy Berry and Daryl Cherney, uh, had survived the bombing, had survived Redwood Summer, uh, and um, decided they had to get back out on the front lines in order to um, basically keep the movement from being crushed. So in 1991, they called a, a campaign called Redwood Summer 2. It was a week-long base camp up in central Humboldt. And I came up with my anarchist comrades from Sacramento. And then, you know, that's how I got involved. We went back to Sacramento for a protest at the Capitol in which I was arrested, covered in mud, <laughs> while several people locked down to different parts of the Capitol building, including the statue of Columbus in the foyer and the railing around the Rotunda, and it was an action for Headwaters Forest, the, the last ancient redwood wilderness in private hands. It was owned by Pacific Lumber. I was arrested. I was then kicked out of the house and found myself kind of floating around Humboldt County wanting to be an Earth Firster. And um, that's when I started really getting to know the Earth First movement here. And through that winter, after the, 19, the 1991 to 1992 winter, I participated in, in organizing meetings and got to know sort of the individuals and the philosophy and the organizing and the politics uh, much, much better, more as I was finishing up high school. Um, and so when the Albion Uprising started in May of 1992, I was already planning, you know, I was already involved, wanted to be doing direct action and uh, was quickly, you know, trained and, and sat in a tree in Albion, along with 15 other people. So we did a lot of tree sits. We did, a, you know, we were out in the woods every day um, and it basically turned the tide. The land was was owned then by Louisiana Pacific along the Albion estuary, right down from Table Mountain. And um, mm -hmm. LP was going to clear cut it. And so we found after nine weeks of sustained direct action that um, the same courts that uh, allowed LP to go in and do that then put into place a uh, restraining order and, and an injunction and stop the logging. So the direct action had a 
huge effect. And when I hear people talk about how, you know, oh, well, it's not possible. Every, you know, everybody writ- wrote their letters. Everybody made their comments. You know, they filed a lawsuit and they lost. Well, direct action, you know, so, so there's no point in, in trying. It's, you know, we already lost. Well, direct action changes the calculus. Uh, it changes what's possible politically. It changes the political landscape because it's, you know, and it works whether or not you're like fighting uh, what I think is a, is a, is a no, noble cause or a worthwhile cause, like trying to stop deforestation. Or if you're a Canadian trucker trying to shut down the border because you don't like, you know, COVID masking restrictions, it doesn't matter. The tactic is powerful. There's a couple of things that are really important about it as a political tactic and what make it effective. And one is nonviolence. Um, it's not not acceptable to um, bring violence into the woods or into any political struggle like that is, first of all, the issues that you are fighting for, the issues that you believe in and the goals that you're fighting for will be completely subsumed by discourse about violence and, and tactics and you know, people will be scared of you and it, it, organizing becomes impossible. It's not that violence is the real effective tactic and nonviolence is just something that we're scared to, that we're too scared to use violence. So we use nonviolence. It's not it at all. Nonviolence is absolutely more powerful than violence. And it, it if you think about it, the society that you're trying to build with your activism, the, the social change that you're trying to make will be determined by how you get there. So nonviolence and inclusiveness and joy and art and creativity and, you know, um, relying, relying on persuasion and conversation and dialogue, all of that stuff will lead to the social change that you want, which is not violent. You don't want violent regimes coming in. You don't want people to be um, controlled by force and fear. That's not the society that we're going for. So that's one thing, the nonviolence. This is my take on Earth First, and this is a long time ago, and a lot of people in this country still believe it, that Earth First does espouse violence. And we know that it doesn't, but where did this come from, the idea of tree spiking and monkey wrenching? and, and Right, right. Well, Earth First was started by a group of people who saw themselves as non-political, and they wrote a book called Eco Defense, which talked about, you know, equipment sabotage. Um, and everybody was always agreed that there wasn't any violence to human beings, uh, that there wasn't ever any use of explosives or guns, or it was, you know, they, they thought that they, you know, were being very clever by saying, well, we don't believe in, in violence to people and property destruction isn't violence. You know, and if you listen to Martin Luther King Jr., he talks about that too, that property destruction can't be uh, equated with violence to human beings. But the fact is, is that people who own those, that equipment, you know, who've sunk their entire livelihoods into that equipment, they would beg to differ, you know, when you're, when you're targeting, um, you know, working people who uh, their equipment is, is their livelihood and is a big part of their identity. And so anyway, we could go on, but one of the things that happened in this area is that Judy Berry and the Earth Firsters here led a discussion within Earth First to really um, interrogate the tactics. And they wanted to organize on a much broader scale. They wanted to reach out to people who maybe weren't already true believers. They wanted to build a mass movement. 
And in that they needed to have a nonviolence code in order to do that. Um, and as long as they didn't, as long as they were not disassociated from tactics, tactics of property destruction and tree spiking, especially, um, they were going to always run into questions about that. And in fact, Judy was confronted by a mill worker that she uh, was organizing with. And he said, you know, how can you say that you support timber workers and still you know, not disassociate yourself from this tactic of tree spiking, which is which puts the lives of uh, tree fallers at, at stake because that they're supposed to be relying on the company being benevolent enough to not put them in danger is that that's why they won't cut and the company doesn't care. So at that point, Judy said, you're right. Tree spiking is morally wrong. And I renounce it and then led the local Earth First group to renounce it. And in that process, did a lot of research on the success of the tactic over time, like whether or not tree spiking had ever even been a tactic worth fighting for. Was it even successful? And she found that it actually was not a successful tactic. And in most cases, the Forest Service or whoever had been spiked used it as an excuse or used it as a distraction from the real issues and made the environmentalists look like terrorists and, you know, went ahead and discredited the movement that was trying to save the place and, and went ahead and logged. So, you know, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of discussion about it. Um, the other, does that answer the question? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking of, you know, things that both Martin Luther, Luther King and Gandhi said that one of the parts of nonviolent civil disobedience is to actually make your opponent think and feel embarrassed about what they're doing. And if you make them feel threatened, they're not going to think they're, they're just going to get angry. So this is, we're, I mean, we're not threatening people in general, like, we love the trees. You know, it's like we don't it's you're not required to be some tough eco Rambo. You know, that's not who we are. We are joyous, creative people. And um, and that, you know, we we stand together in solidarity. And if we're not interested in force or violence, you know, that's not the society that we want to live in. We're, we're against those things. We want to live in a peaceful society in which people and the forest can coexist and thrive. And so, you know, yeah, uh, I think you. a lot of it is just kind of fantasies about, you know, too much Hollywood movies that we've seen. It's like, it's not about one individual dude with his weaponry or one, even one dude with his technologically brilliant blockade. It's about all of us, coming back over and over and over again to protect these trees that we love. Yeah. So, but the other part of it, it's not just about the nonviolence. Um, it's about where the blockades happen. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and so there's all sorts of protests and, you know, they're all appropriate at, strategically for one reason or another, depending on how the movement is unfolding, but direct action happens at the point of production or at the point of destruction. And that's what makes it, so powerful. That's why the Canadian truckers can be, you know, can make can make gains on their demands as well as the forest protesters, because you're in the place where uh, you're not just asking, you know, Cal Fire to stop the saws. You're stopping the saws, you know, and, yeah. and, and that like they, they have to deal with you at that point. So it's a very, very powerful place to be. And, you know, you'll find that uh, when we're protesting agencies, that's, you know, that's important. The agencies need to be held accountable. But in almost 100 percent of the cases, the destruction is being done by 
private companies and corporations. And you will find if you look that the corporations have engineered a lot of the agencies. Cal Fire is a great example. The forestry site is captured by the timber industry. It, it's, it's important to not get confused about who is calling the shots uh, in, in the different movements. And in timber, it is the timber industry and Cal Fire is serving them. So when we get out to the point of production, we are confronting the real the real adversary, the real power here, which is the timber companies. Yeah. This is also a real problem though. Uh, it's a quandary that we find ourselves in with, you know, we are confronting the workers and we're confronting the people who are just doing their job and trying to make a living. And a lot of them feel like, well, you're stopping me. I can't feed my family. And I'm not responsible for the decisions. The decisions are being made somewhere else. And so it's, it feels like it's part of a really, um, a broad set of tactics, but it also has to include dialogue and the idea of violence precludes dialogue. Yeah, that's another excellent reason why we can never ever use violence or even come in there with an attitude of blame mm -hmm. because it's a failure of understanding of who is responsible for what's going on out there. And the, as we have seen in this, in this region, uh, when we are the most powerful and the most effective when workplace issues for timber workers are part of our demands for change. Mm -hmm. And and the fact is that in almost all cases, timber workers cannot advocate for themselves because of the economic situation that they're in. And you'll talk to people who were around in the 1990s when Louisiana Pacific and Georgia Pacific were strip logging. They were extracting all of the timber, you know, down to twigs and branches and they were throwing them in dumpsters and, you know, taking everything before they left. And people in the timber industry knew very well that what was happening was not sustainable and what was happening was wrong. And some of them spoke out and were blacklisted and were not able to work uh, again in the industry. And even their families turned against them, you know, for, for a spell. But so people know what the consequences are if they speak out against it. So it is not appropriate for us to go into the woods and lecture or condescend to, or, um, you know, otherwise treat timber workers like they are the people who are responsible for this. They are our potential allies. And it is really our job to advocate for their workplace conditions every bit as much as it is to, uh, and to not, and to educate ourselves about their conditions. Mm -hmm. I really feel like at the start of this, it, it was surprising to me that we didn't get more um, pushback from the timber workers. But a lot of it is because uh, the first, all the first struggles at Jackson were around Casper 500, working with Anderson Logging, and pretty much all of their timber followers are Hispanic men who really did not have such a bone to pick with the activists. And when it turned into the fight with Soda Gulch and it was um, some older Anglo loggers who felt more empowered to, to fight back and to put us down. Whereas the Hispanic tree fallers are, they're doing their jobs and the, they don't feel like they have a lot of say because a lot of them I know and I know they came across the border illegally and they're working for companies that are tend to support Republican candidates and tend to not really give the space for them to have a lot of say within their, their organization. 
I mean, that's exactly right. In any other workplace struggle in any, any other industry, we would be able to see that, that the workers are um, one of the casualties of the way that the industry is structured. And it's not by accident. They put the most pressure on the people who are, you know, the least able to fight back. And so, it, you know, if we are really wanting to, to talk about what social justice looks like, in these woods, you know, we, we have to make that one of our, our main focuses is the, the working conditions and protections for workers, you know, health care and benefits and safety precautions and the ability to, you know, say no. Or how about organizing contracts that don't um, cause them to lose money when when blockades that everybody knows are going to happen like in Casper 500. Everybody knew Miles Anderson told me when I interviewed him that he knew it was going to be a controversial plan. How about organizing a contract that protects your workers from delays? You know, so they're not the ones bearing the brunt um, of of the political choices that the mill owners and the the timber. I mean, the uh, the the LTOs are making. Yeah, and this is really an extremely dangerous job. It is, tree falling is the most dangerous job in the country. And I remember just a few years back, Alexis Osorio, who was one of my students, I, I had him in my classes at Dana Gray Elementary in Fort Bragg when he was in third, fourth, and fifth grade. And he died on his mm -hmm. first day working with Anderson Logging. Um, a tree twisted and fell the wrong direction and fell on him. And... He was born, I think he was born in Fort Bragg, but his, his parents were immigrants and he was in a position of hope, hoping to get a good job and support his family and, and he didn't survive a week on the job. Yeah, that's awful. Can you talk briefly about how music has fit into your activism? Yeah, so I always loved music. I always loved the movement music. It's funny because I was, uh, this was at a time when like, you know, my generation was listening to Nirvana and there was this, like, we had, we were creating our own sort of pop culture and slackers and all that stuff. I was out of it completely. I was up here in the woods listening to Joanne Rand and Alice DiMaselli and Francine and Maya and their songs about, you know, trees. And so for me, like I was shocked to find out I could learn a couple of chords on the guitar and I could play those songs too and I could sing them. And so that was really where it started for me. And then of course, working with Judy Berry and Daryl Cherney music was, is a huge part of why they were so effective. And I've also toured around the country a lot, um, you know, doing little road shows, talking about Headwaters Forest or talking about Judy Berry's lawsuit against the FBI. Everywhere I've gone, they know those songs. Mm -hmm. So I think that the, the music is a huge, incredibly powerful organizing tool. And then it's just like makes us kind of co it's co it makes us cohesive with each other. We recognize each other in all of these places across the country. And then finally, it's just really it's just really great to have musicians on the front lines. It keeps the energy up. It's um, fun. It it brings everybody together. It makes you feel safe. It you know, it, it it's it's great. And then we also document what's happened in the songs. Right. Like and we make fun of people in the songs and it's just we make fun of ourselves and make, you know, it's just it's kind of how we remember and how we sort of 
document wh- what's happened. So yeah, so music's been been really powerful. And then I just enjoy playing music and I enjoy playing music with other people. And it's just really, as you well know, it's really satisfying and fun. So it's that's good. It helps make things sustainable. So we're going to end with a song that you wrote and you're performing, Hold Your Head Up High. Would you like to introduce it for us? Sure. This is a song that I wrote uh, in the months after Judy died of breast cancer. And it was really a song I was thinking about. Well, I was thinking about how much I missed her and her voice. Uh, I was also thinking about her daughters and um, what that meant to lose their mom and just wanted to have a, you know, a song just cheer us on as we move forward without her. So that's what this song is. Thank you so much for being with us, Alicia Littletree. Thanks, Chad. It's been a pleasure. Here we go with Hold Your Head Up High, Alicia Littletree. So much for spending the last hour with us on Disquiet on the Western Front. The views and opinions expressed on this show are only the views of myself and my guests, not of KZOIX staff or management. I, of course, would like to thank all the people who contributed to this show. The Activist Youth, Greasy Pete, Valentine, B, Otter, Michaela, Ash, Walker, Sarah Constance Rose, Ravel Gautier, and the younger incarnation of Alicia Littletree, and of course their allies, Shell and Derek. If you want to share this show with somebody, and I encourage you to do it, go to disquietmedia.blue, where you can find it and other of my shows. You can also go to kzyx.org jukebox and get it there. And if you want an easy way to access KZYX's embarrassment of riches in the public affairs department, go to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the KZYX public affairs app. And I would also like to thank the Katzef family from Thanksgiving Coffee for the support they've given to the trail stewards, to the Coalition to Save Jackson, and to this show. This is Chad Swimmer signing off. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.